Okay, Genesis 1. If you have your Bible, go to Genesis 1. And Genesis 2. I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26. I'm going to basically read um, what I've been reading to you guys the, the last three weeks. I do not want to give you my opinion today on this text. We all have opinions, especially when it comes to the topic of marriage. If you're married, you have a lot of opinions. And I'm the one with the mic, so it's not fair that I would give my opinion and not let you share your opinion. So what I endeavor to do this morning is I want to give you the scriptures. I want to place myself, our time, this sermon, I want to place all of us under the scriptures leading its authority and its wisdom. So allow me to read to you verse 26 and 27, chapter 1, and then skip over to verse uh, 18 in chapter 2, and then let me pray. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man, male and female, he created them. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man and said this. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, I endeavor today to be clear, so I pray you give me clarity. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts of faith to receive. God, I pray that anyone who's in a relationship, in a marriage, or just flat out lonely today, you would minister to all of us. I know that when we talk about the topic of marriage, it doesn't hit all of us at the same way, in the same place. We're not all at the same place but I believe that your transcendent word can speak to every single heart, every single situation, whether we are absolutely opposed to marriage or desperate for it. You can speak to us the same. I pray that you would um, use me, Lord. I'm just so humbled by this text and desperately need your help. God, we want to hear from you, not a, not a man. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we've been doing the last several weeks um, is going through the book of Genesis and what we did is we hit this like vein in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where it talks about we were made, and I read it this morning, um, we are made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created us, male and female, he created them. And this Latin phrase, the imago Dei, we've, we've been kind of, we hit this like vein of gold, and we've been like just trying to trace it out, like take it as far as, as we can go with it. And the first week, we, we said that the first thing that being made in the image of God means, the first implication that it has, is that it gives us an identity, being made in the image of God actually gives us, it should shape our identity. When you are looking for an identity, when you're looking for who am I, 
we can't find it in the things that we do. We can't find it in, in, in the, things that, uh, the things that we have. We can't find it even by looking inward. Because we were created, we have to find an identity first by looking upward to God. That's what we said the first week. Last week, we said being made in the image of God means that we were created for relationship. You were created for relationship. You were not created to be alone. The first application of that phrase we read, it's not good for man to be alone. The first application is you and I were created for relationship. And the reason why we can say that and not say the first application is necessarily marriage is because the greatest picture of the image of God, God in flesh was single, Jesus. And in marriage, Jesus even said there will be no, or in heaven there will be no marriage. So we know that the first application is relationship, and that's what we talked about last week. But I think the most obvious implication here is marriage. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, marriage. Now I know ever since we first started, when we first started this church almost two years ago, from the second Sunday we started it, I had people walk up to me and say, San Francisco is a graveyard to find spouses. Cannot find a spouse. You have to go to a foreign land to find a spouse and then bring them back to San Francisco. You cannot find a spouse in, this is like a wasteland. And I would say, you're kind of right. And I think the root of that, as I've been thinking deeply about it for the last two years, at its root is what we talked about last week. We live completely independent lives, self-sufficient lives. We don't live in relationships. So I think the first step is to be in community. You were not created to be alone. You have to be in community. But I will say that in our church right now, there are several, if not many, couples that are engaged to be married, and um, it's been awesome to watch that happen and unfold. A lot of them, some, several of them met here at Reality. And even my wife and I have been praying about doing a, um, a pre-marriage or an engaged couples class next year in January. So, in our home. So, if you're uh, engaged to be married, keep that in mind. If you're not, you've got three months. So, do whatever you have to do. Now, let me be completely transparent right now. I absolutely love marriage. I love the topic of marriage. Um, my wife and I have been married for nine years. And I'm not, I don't want to get sappy or anything like that, but I got to marry my first love, my absolute first love. I, I, got to, I remember telling my dad in, in, our, in the garage um, when I was 16 years old, the year was 1995. And I told my dad while we were in the garage, Dad, I'm going to marry her. And he laughed. And he said, well, that's cute. Um, finish sweeping the garage, and you're 16 years old. You have no idea what you're talking about. The only thing I really could think of that would make um, our marriage, my wife and I, our marriage even greater would be having kids, but that's completely in God's timing. And I know that when we study and when I teach this, it, it is a fun topic, but let me just tell you this, to be completely transparent, it's a very difficult topic to talk about, especially in San Francisco. Immediately when I say marriage, there's thoughts that pop into everyone's head that lives here. What about marriage rights? And if you have that settled in your mind or not, if I can get you beyond marital rights, we would come into what about marital roles? And that's when everyone gets the gloves out all over again. And then if you have that settled in your mind, there's the reality of divorce. People cheating, men overworking, women overworking, neglect, abuse. 
But even if you get beyond that, we still have a lot of people in this church who are not married and really want to be. So if I try to navigate through all of that, all I would be left about and all I'd be left with to talk about today is marriage is awesome, maybe. End of sermon, let's pray. <laughs> and you know I can't do that. You know, as I, if you've been here for any length of time, there are difficult subjects that come up in Scripture that we try to, ha- try to tackle head on. I do not want to offend you, but frankly, I probably will. But let me say this before we get started today. Let's be a people. Let's be people who don't just go to their pastor and go, give me answers. Let's be people together that look for answers. I find it stunning how many people come up to me and say, Jesus didn't claim this or Jesus didn't claim that. Like, I want him to come out and just say it really clearly. And that doesn't happen in the New Testament. You have to get to know the person of Jesus before you get to know the person of Jesus. The answers aren't just as clear as you and I want them to be. Jesus is a person. God is a person. You have to get to know him. So I would say the same thing here. There are things, there might be things in here that offend you. Well, if God is completely other, he should offend you at some point. And so let's endeavor to go, let's ask good questions. If this is totally against everything that you believe, then let's talk about it together. Let's not just fight with like, well, do you have the right answer? I have the right. Let's look for the answer together. And so that's why this morning I don't necessarily want to give my opinion. I really endeavor to go, okay, what is this, what, what is this text teaching us? So let's learn. And I wanted to use the same framework that I used last week in talking about relationships. I said that Genesis 1 and 2 says that we were made in the image of God, therefore we were made for relationships. I said that's the first application. The first application of it's not good for man to be alone is relationships. The second and more obvious one is marriage. And what we see from Genesis 2 is that garden paradise, the garden of Eden, paradise, was not perfect and complete until the woman. And everyone said, amen, right? First service, someone said, that's right. (laughs) That works as well. We'll start with the same place that we started last week, the place of marriage. And that's how I want to start this sermon, the place of marriage. And I want to remind you again of the context, Genesis 2, the context of Genesis 2. Adam is in perfect paradise with God, absolutely perfect, perfect weather, perfect environment, perfect food. Adam has a perfect body. He has a perfect mind. He has a perfect soul. He has a perfect relationship with God. It's all perfect except something's missing. And God says to Adam, son, there's something not right here. You're alone. To which we said, maybe you might respond to the text. If you read the text and respond to the text, you might go, wait, he's not alone. He has God. That might be something that you have said maybe in in a moment of spiritual like bliss and euphoria. Like, yes, God, all I need is you. You're so close to me. All I need is you. Or maybe you hate the world and go, I hate the world, God. All I need is you. Either way, we've probably been there. All I need, all I want is God. And Adam was there. Adam was in that very place, but, and perfection surrounded him. But God still said, it's not good that you're alone. It's not good. Trust me, son. You're alone. So man, generic man, mankind, was created in the image of God. You and I were created in the image of God. Chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You were created by God 
and you were created like God. You were created to be in a relationship. We talked about that last week, and if you weren't here, please get that teaching. It's very important, God being a triunity and how we were made in his image. You were created in the Imago Dei. You may have heard that what it means to be created in the image of God is that you have a, you have a body, and you have a soul, and you have a mind, or a body, soul, and spirit. Basically, you have a body, you have a, the capacity to think, and you have the capacity for emotions. That is a very popular notion when people talk about what it means to be created in God's image. You have a body, you have the capacity to think and reason, and you have emotions. You're three in one. You were created in the image of God. But you see how extremely selfish that is. That means I can be the image of God apart from everyone else around me. I can be complete. I can look inward to find myself. I can look inward to find my identity. I can, find, I can look inward to find meaning. And that is not true. It's very self-centered. It's actually a very Western way of looking at things where we believe that our identity and our self comes from within. All we need for fulfillment in this life and happiness in this life is found in me, me working hard, me doing, me living, me fulfilling all my dreams, all my desires, all my wants, but those are all lies. Being created in the image of God means that we were created for relationship. That's why God, when perfect environment, perfect everything, God goes, it's not good for you that you're alone. You were created like me. Well, God's not created, but I made you in my image, that, therefore I made you for relationship. I made you to be with another. We were created to be radically towards the other, towards them in relationship, towards them in community. And there is no more intense and intimate a picture of this than the picture of marriage. And so Eve is created. It's not good for man to be alone. God says, I will make a helper fit for you. So what does God do? Surprisingly, I mean, if you think about the way God made Adam, what happened was God made Adam out of the dirt. And so when, he, when God looks at Adam and goes, it's not good for you to be alone, he could have easily went, okay, um, and I want to present to you. And Eve's like walking along the horizon and comes up, I want to present to you Eve. And then she comes strolling up. Or he could have went, bam, Eve. Or something. He, why go through all this production to put Adam asleep, to grab a, a part of his side, to pull it out, to fashion it? Why go through all of this? Surprisingly, what God does is he doesn't create again right away. He begins to parade all the animals in front of Adam and naming all these animals. In the biblical text, it gives no indication that Adam even felt lonely. It wasn't like Adam was like walking around going, God, I'm just so bummed. I'm so alone. No one's like me around here. Everyone's weird. This is crazy. Lord, I need some. He does, there's no indication that he does that. Now, listen, single people, Listen. Like, does God even know how lonely I am? God knew how lonely Adam was before Adam knew he was lonely. Would you just rest for a second and trust in God? Even if you have to write that on your mirror really big or something, get a tattoo, do something. Trust <laughs> in the Lord, okay? Trust in God. You, and Adam's like, I, I, he might even say, I don't, I don't really feel lonely, God. He's like, believe me, you're lonely. He's like, but how does that feel? You'll know when you see her how, what you were missing. So we're told here that God brought all the animals before Adam because Adam didn't see his problem with his aloneness. And we're only given the divine viewpoint here. We're only given God's side. We're not given Adam's viewpoint. We're only given God. God said, I created you, Adam. I created you to be in fellowship with me, but I also created you to be a social entity in fellowship with others, building relationships with other human beings. Therefore, listen, therefore, man will not live until he loves God knows this. 
Man will not be fully alive until he loves, until he's in a loving relationship, giving himself away to, the, to another on his own level. Not to the animals, how cute they were. Not to the environment, how noble that is. On his own level, which also speaks of equality and dignity and worth and calling, but we'll talk about that in a second. And I also want you to think of this. It was in the context of serving God that Adam encountered his own need. It wasn't him just hanging out. It was in the context of him serving God, doing what God said, naming these animals, and he's serving God, and he sees in that context his own need. And not only that, he examined each animal to name it, and it dawned on him that there was no creature in the garden that shared his nature. And this is what God meant by it's not good. When we looked at that statement, it's not good, whenever we've said that, we said whenever something is good, in Genesis 1, whenever God calls something good, it, was, it meant that it was functioning as God intended it. It was orderly. It was, it was beautiful. It had purpose. It was in harmony with itself, with its environment. So light, uh, day and night, land and ocean, sky, and then they teem with things. Like the ocean was there, but it wasn't just the ocean. It was teeming with life. And the sky was there, but it was teeming with wild uh, birds. And then there, the land was there, but it was teeming with animals and man. Like it wasn't, it didn't really have function until it was filled. And so Adam's created And nothing, he was incomplete until Eve. It meant this. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, it's like you're not functional. There was non-harmony. You're without complete purpose. Animals could not complete Adam. Listen, animals, animals could not complete Adam. A perfect environment could not complete man. Not even God. Okay, this might sound scandalous. Not even God, in the way that God created man, not even God could complete Adam. That's why he said, it's not good for you to be alone. And what did God do? Look at verse 20 in chapter 2. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a... A deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, oh, wow. No, he said, it, it sounded more like this. At la- Okay, I know it sounds a little um, dry. This is actually beautiful poetry. He says, at last, at this, at last. After all of that searching, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, God could have called Eve into existence. Why all the fanfare, all the production of putting a man to sleep and getting a part of his side? This is why. Woman is the first creation to come from a living being. God creates the man first and then derives the woman from the man to ensure that she is equal in substance. Equal in value, equal in worth. Genesis 1 is explicit about this. Whenever God gives a a command, I want you to have dominion. Who? He gave dominion to them. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Who do you tell that to? To them. Both of them. They have equal dignity, equal worth. But why was Eve created from Adam's rib? That's a question that always comes up. Why the rib? A better way to read this is his side. Eve was created from Adam's side. Some commentators and Hebrew scholars think that it was more like 
God, what this is actually saying is God put man to sleep and he grabbed man's side and he yanked off flesh, bone, and tissue from Adam and then closed it up, a handful of it, and he made Eve from that. Now, first of all, this is not an anatomy lesson. Men do not have one less rib than women, okay? Don't think that. Don't tell that to people. That's not true. Don't go Google it or not. It's, not. it's not true. This is not a lesson in anatomy. This is not, that would actually be kind of cool if that happened. And it would, it, would, it would just prove all of us think materially. Remember we looked at when we studied Genesis 1? We always think in terms of material. Why did God take a rib? Listen, there's a greater purpose going on here. And what that purpose is, and the purpose Eve is being made from Adam's side is this. And it might sound a bit corny, I, I know. But this is why. Woman was taken from man's side to be by his side. Like, okay, that's um, super corny, and I can't believe you just said that. Listen, this is, and this is, as a pastor, if you want to know what's the best picture you can, I, you can give, I can give you on marriage, this will be the best picture I can give you of marriage. Marriage, everybody take note, is a partnership. Marriage is side by side in purpose. A marriage is side-by-side in purpose, side-by-side in calling, side-by-side in mission, side-by-side in work. It's side-by-side in purpose, but it's face-to-face in intimacy, in love, in care, in communication. That's the best picture I can give you. It's side-by-side in in purpose, face-to-face in intimacy. Every single wedding that I do, it starts side by side. What happens is the groom is standing next to me and he's like really excited to get married and he's nervous and he's like, it's funny like how nervous the guy is every single wedding. It's like, dude, you don't have to do anything. Just stand there and smile or cry or laugh. Do whatever you want. But everyone's looking at the bride. No one's even looking at you, man. So just enjoy this. So he's always really, do I lock my knees? Do I not lock my knees? Do I faint? Or what do I do? I'm like, just stand there. Just calm down. So then his bride walks up, and she's like stunning and beautiful, and he's ex- excited and stoked, and she comes up, and, and her dad's giving her away. I'm like, go get your bride, and he goes and gets her, and they stand there side by side, and they say, stay there first, and they're looking at me side by side, and I talk about marriage. I talk about the purpose of marriage and why they're being married, and they're called together side by side in partnership, side by side in purpose, and then I say, bride, would you please hand off your beautiful bouquet? And she does. They go turn and face one another. And then they face each other. And then they get all like giddy and cute. And they, t- t- they start talking to each other. I'm like, hello, there's a wedding going on. Like, <laughs> and they're talking. And they're like, how are you? I'm good. I'm going to do it today. I don't know. what I, I'm like, They're just like talking. And then, and then I go into the vows. And I say, look each other in the eye. Because the guy always wants to look at me and give me his vows. I'm like, you're not vowing to me, man. Like you're vowing to her. So look at her. And so he's looking at her, and they're face-to-face in intimacy, vowing to one another, promising to one another. That is what marriage is. And so when Adam wakes up and he meets his bride, this is exactly what he does. He breaks out into vow. That's what he does. Now, he says this, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is poetry. What Adam is saying here, what this is saying poetically, is a part of me is missing and it's in you, and it's beckoning me to you. It's a good Christian pickup line, by the way. <laughs> this, that's exactly, that's kind of what he's saying. There, I'm missing something. I, it's, it's, I, I see it in you, and that part of me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is, is beckoning me to you. That's what's going on. But it's not just poetry. It's covenantal language. That's what he's saying. He actually gives a m- marriage vow with the first time he sees Eve. Victor Hamilton says this. 
This phrase is actually a covenant formula that speaks not of a common birth, but of common reciprocal loyalty. Taken this way, the man's this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh becomes a covenantal statement of his commitment to her. Thus, it would serve as the biblical counterpart to the modern marriage ceremony, quote, in weakness, flesh, and in strength, bone. Circumstances will not alter the loyalty and the commitment of the one to the other. What he does is he breaks out in covenant. He vows himself to her the second he sees her. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Whenever, if you trace this phrase out throughout the Bible, you'll come to to, uh, 2 Samuel where uh, King David is met by a tribe. And the tribe comes up to to King David and says, we are your bone and your flesh. He's not saying we're related to you. They weren't saying we're your kinsmen. They were saying this, we vow and pledge our loyalty to you. That's what this means. I pledge myself. This is what the man was saying to the woman. I pledge myself to you. And so every wedding that I do, I end it the same way. I tell them that they entered into a covenant. They've entered into a promise. They've entered into a vow. They have not entered into a contract. Contract is what everyone signs when they get an apartment in San Francisco. It's really thick. You have to sign it. And when you sign it, you're like, well, why do I have to sign this? Don't you trust me? And they're like, no, we don't trust you. That's why we have you sign it. And even to show you more how we don't trust you, we need two months deposit on top of the contract. That's how they don't trust you. Marriage is not like that. And I say this in the wedding. You signed a covenant, not a contract. A contract is based on distrust between two parties. That's why you sign a contract. A covenant is based on trust. Trust with one another's body, emotion, money, spiritually, everything. It's complete trust. A contract is based on limited liability, meaning I'm liable here and here and here, but I'm not liable over here. So if you do this to me, I'm not liable for it. That's not marriage. Marriage is a covenant that's based on unlimited responsibility, completely responsible for your spouse no matter what. A contract can be made null and void if circumstances change. A contract, a covenant can never be broken under any circumstance. And I look them in the eye and say, you two have just entered into a covenant. Now, I, I read them that before so they don't like, they don't like flip out. Like, what, what do we just do? They know that as they're going into it. But that's what they got into. That's what marriage is. And this is what marriage is. A covenant is what binds you together. Uh, Lewis Smeeds wrote an article in the 80s in Christianity Today where he kind of summed this up really, really well. He said this. Speaking of vows. He said, when I married my wife... I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. The connecting link with my old self has always been the memory of the name I took. By name, he means the vow he took. The vow I took back there, and this is the vow he took, I am he who will be there with you. And she had the same vow. I am she that will be there with you. He says, when we slough off that name, lose that identity, we can hardly find ourselves again. And the bonds that connect us to others will be fraying into breaking. I haven't been married that long. I've only been married for nine years. But I can tell you that over the nine years, my wife has been married to several different men, all of them being me. When we first got married, I was a young youth pastor And then in the middle there, I was a barista at Starbucks who was going through a quarter-life crisis. 
a full-on identity breakdown. And now she's married to a church planner who's losing his mind and hair at the same time. <laughs> and what's kept us together, as she has changed as well, what's kept us together and what will keep us together is a promise, a vow, a covenant. And this is what Adam makes with Eve. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, I vow myself to you completely. Uh, last year, I read this article, but it, it's, it warrants repeating. A friend of mine sent me an article from Elle magazine. I don't regularly get Elle magazine, so this was really helpful. And it was an article written by Rachel Combe, and she wrote an article which has a very clever title, Till Whatever Do Us Part. And in an article, she says that almost, almost every single marriage nowadays are consumer marriages. And she says this in her article. As long as my spouse is meeting my needs, then I stay. But if the costs go up and the rewards go down, I bolt. If, I'm a, better, if, if, if a better alternative comes along, I'm gone. So there's always a threat to the marriage, and couples are always asking, how happy is this marriage making me? This is why we recommend, we love getting around uh, engaged couples to do some sort of premarital counseling or class or something. Because we spend most of our lives thinking about us, what we can get out of life. And then we get into marriage and nothing really changes. We kind of cohabitate and that's it. When it's a complete reversal, it's like all of a sudden I care about them. Marriage becomes all about us when we don't address that right off the bat. And then when we begin to suffer, when our needs are not being met, when our expectations are not fulfilled, or when we're hurt, that's when things get difficult and we want to leave. And that's why I love the premise of the book that we recommended that you read for this series called Sacred Marriage. The premise of the entire book is this. The author asks, what if the point of marriage is not just your happiness? What if the point of marriage was your holiness? Not just your happiness, your holiness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was performing a wedding for a young couple, said during the ceremony, he said, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, from this point forward, the marriage that sustains your love. This is covenantual vows. Love is a really crazy emotion. Love could turn crazy love into crazy hate. Love can flip like this, and all of a sudden I love you, and then I want to kind of strangle you. So what keeps it together through all these rolling emotions? The marriage vow. But that's not all Adam said when he saw Eve. When Adam saw Eve, he actually named Eve. He said, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Before women take offense at this, let me explain what this means. Not only did Adam break into poetry and basically say, this is the one, this is my companion, she's alone is my equal, she's my very flesh, I identify with her, I love her, but he also says, I will call her woman for she came out of man. Notice first, as soon as Adam sees Eve, as soon as man sees woman, he doesn't see her as a threat, as a rival, like, oh, some competition up in this garden now. Doesn't do that at all. He sees her as a gift. He sees her as a, not as a, not as someone who's a threat, but someone who's a partner. The only one capable of fulfilling everything, every longing that he had to heal his loneliness. Then he names her. And by naming her Isha, woman, there's a sound play, a word play on Ish, man. It's actually picked up in English pretty well as well. Man is found in woman. Get this. This is the first time Adam 
This is the first time man identifies himself. See, the pun is even in English. In naming her, the man actually names himself. See the implications of that? In calling her Isha, he relates his own name, embedded in her name. In essence, he finds himself in her. He says, I now know who I am as I see you. You are a woman and I am man. And my name is like embedded in your name. This is marriage. In marriage, there's something about it that you learn who you are even more so. You learn how to be a better you. This is marriage. And I've learned so much about myself being married to my wife. And my wife has learned so much about herself where there's times in our marriage where we know when we look back, there's no way I could have made it if you weren't there. That's marriage. I want to give you two practical outworkings of this before we close. The first outworking of this, practical implications of this, is men and, we, men, men and women are equal in stewardship. Genesis 1 is pretty explicit about this. There's a joint stewardship given to both men and women in Genesis 1. They both together exercise dominion over the earth for the glory of God. They both together are given the, the command to multiply and be stewards of the children that God has given to them. Even, even in the, and I mean, some I've been thinking about for like 10 years now, even in the creation of, of Eve, it was in the context of, of, God, of God giving a call to Adam. Adam wasn't like, uh, maybe I need a spouse. He realized it in the context of work. He realized it in the context of calling. Now, could you do this for a second? I know that a lot of us, a lot of you guys maybe don't think so much about marriage in those terms. But we should start. Calling. Whenever I talk, sit down with couples like, why do you want to get married? Like, well, he's really cute, or she's really cute, or I'm really lonely, or this person is this, or this person that. And those are all, those are all good things. But very rarely do I hear, I have a calling, and she has a calling, and together, I'm completely, completely in love with this person, but together, we're going to fulfill God's calling for us. That's what marriage is. The second implication, apart from equal stewardship, is men and women are, quote, like opposites. The word helper, and I told you last week I deal with this word, the word helper, azer in Hebrew, or however you pronounce that, is used almost exclusively for God. Adam wasn't given an assistant. Adam wasn't given a secretary. Adam wasn't given someone like, you know what? You need someone to help you. You're going to go about my important business, and she's going to kind of like take care of stuff. That's not what's going on. The word helper is always used for God. God is our helper, meaning we have needs, and God meets those needs. And so God uses the same word for Adam. You need a helper. This doesn't mean, whenever this word is used, it doesn't suggest a subservient status of the one helping. Oftentimes, it's actually opposite in its usage, which means this. You can't use this word for male dominance. This is also what it means, that Adam needs a helper. He needs a companion. And God creates for him someone equal in dignity and worth, but opposite and complementary in personhood. God doesn't bring to Adam someone just like him. He brings him actually someone like, opposite, suitable. Here's a quote from the book that we recommend that you get called um, God Behaving Badly. He said, the Hebrew word translated suitable literally means like opposite him, almost a mirror image. There is a connotation of difference as well as sameness, but nothing suggesting inferiority of either gender. The helper is therefore not a pawn, but a partner, not a slave, but a soulmate. 
Genesis is is painting a highly favorable image of women, one that would not have been one that would have been shockingly progressive within its ancient Near Eastern context. Here's the point of that. I want you to listen, and I don't want you to think I'm trying to be funny or controversial. But this this is the point of this. Stop trying to marry yourself. Stop trying to marry yourself. Stop looking at everyone going, nah, nah, you don't like the same moves as me. You don't like, like the same coffee as me. You don't like the same food as me. You're like, you're just totally different than me. That's the point. God doesn't bring someone to Adam who's just like him. He brings someone who's like opposite him. Why? Because you're not the most important person in the world. You see how self-centered it is? I want to find someone just like me. You want to marry you is what you're saying. That's weird. Stop trying to find someone exactly like you. This should open up the dating field pretty broadly. (laughs) And I want you to think about this. That's not how God intended it. Like means there should be some sort of traction, but opposite denotes that someone will challenge you and sharpen you and help you be all that God desires you to be. My wife and I are almost complete opposites. I like the morning. She is a night owl. I am outgoing. She's a recluse. Most of you have never met her. Or you have met her and you don't know who she is. She'll like go, she'll meet you like four times before she ever mentions that she's my wife. I don't know if she's ashamed. I, don't, I haven't really figured it out yet. <laughs> she's a complete recluse. That's, that's, how, that's how she lives. She, we're completely opposite. I'm actually the emotional one, if you can get that. And she's like the stable one. I'm the emotional one and she's not. Like when she gets emotional, it's when like there's a good commercial that's on or like, or like, there's a cute old man that walks across the street or an old, old man, old lady, or holding hands and she'll start like getting teary. That's how she gets emotional. But other than that, she doesn't. I'm the one that's going like this all the time. Completely opposite. That's, a, that's how it's supposed to be. And what this should do is, this should, this should make you think. Instead of ruling people out going, you know what, they might love Jesus and we might go to the same church or even different churches, but they're nothing like me. I don't know if we're compatible. That's the point. That's the point. And there's something that holds, that binds two people together that's more than compatibility. It's your vow. Do you understand that? That's why we're talking about doing arranged marriages. No, I'm sure we're not doing that. (laughs) Every time I bring it up, people actually go, all right. (laughs) So what about loneliness? This is how we'll close. What about loneliness? What about, okay, I'm in marriage, but my marriage is really difficult. I feel more lonely being married than I was when I was single. What about people like, I want to be married? I do. But it's not happening. And I feel completely lonely. Or you've been destroyed by someone in a relationship. Or divorced, or someone has left you. Someone to, what about brokenness? Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes after the woman at the well? She's at the well, and she's getting water in the heat of the day, and he goes and he meets her, and they're talking, and he's like, and she's like, why are you talking to me? You're, you're a male, you're, 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 you're a Jew, you're a rabbi, and I'm, I'm not, and, and this, is, this is weird, and we shouldn't be talking. And, and he's like, go get, then go get your husband. And she's like, I don't, I don't have a husband. Remember what he said? He says, you, you know, you're right. You have, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. It's like Jesus knew that she's, was, she's been looking for her Adam. She's been looking for her soulmate. She's been looking, and every single time, it's just ended up that she's married to a jerk. Or maybe she has attachment issues. She's messed up relationally bad. And then she says, well, 
it looks, sounds like you're like a prophet or something. And then Jesus, and, they, and she starts trying to avoid it a little bit by asking this real theological question about worship. And Jesus is like, you know what, it doesn't, doesn't matter where you worship. True worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And he says, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, what's ironic about that was Jesus was there seeking and saving the lost. So the Father seeking people to worship him was Jesus in flesh there in the middle of the day seeking her out. And then she says, you know what? I'll know all about this and I'll get all of this when the deliverer comes, when Messiah comes. Then I'll know all of this stuff. And he looks her in the eye and he says, I who speak to you am he. Not to be corny, but like I'm the one that you've been looking for. I'm the one that can like heal your heart before you get into another relationship. I'm the one that can heal your heart in a broken relationship. I'm the one that restores your soul. I can give you living water. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was in prison, wrote this poem. He was just about to be engaged to, to be married, and he gets sent off to prison, and he writes this in prison. He says, who am I, this or the other? I am one person today and, to, and tomorrow another. Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? And before myself a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, that I am thine. This is what you have to know first. In marriage, out of marriage, in a good marriage, in a bad marriage, in a, in a place of loneliness, that you are Christ's. That's what you need to hear first. Let's pray. Thank you, God that we can know you. Thank you that you're near us. Thank you that when, when we feel so isolated alone, whether that is around our best friends or completely alone at home, that you are with us. And I pray that people here who are lonely would sense your nearness. And I pray that people that desire a spouse, Lord, I pray, just, God, I ask that you would, you would, you would make a way, God. You can do that. And I pray that you would supernaturally begin to do that in this church. And I pray against any weirdness. I pray against any, any sin. I, and I pray that healthy, godly relationships would begin to be built. And I also pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the marriages that are here. We look to you. We turn to you no matter where we're at in life. And we know that just you meet all our you mean everything, all our spiritual needs, our soul needs, God. You heal us that we can be in right relationship with others. In Jesus' name, amen.